This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I'm your host, Lorez, and on the show today, we have probably the first person from YouTube I ever got to know. We have the Wizard of Cause. How are you doing today, sir? Well, not too bad. Well, I'm still getting to a point now where I'm starting to cringe whenever I hear that name. <laughs> Do you want to just go by your real name from now on? Are you, oh, you yeah, going to no, rebrand? I prefer, I prefer, yeah, I prefer people call me Nick anyway, and at this point, like... You know, with the, with the old associations of the, the quote-unquote shitlord world, it's like, ah, no. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but, I'll, 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 but I'll call you low-res, because I know, you know, you're sensitive about these Well, I'm, I'm trying to protect my identity nowadays, you know? You gotta do that. There's some real weirdos out there on the internet between, you know, 4chan and 8chan, and, you know, if you even look at just some Facebook groups, there's very horrifying people. But the film that we're going to be discussing today, among other things, is Casualties of War, Brian De Palma's 1989 hit about the Vietnam War. I hope you understand how serious this situation is. Yes, sir. That's why I reported it, sir. This kind of thing can cause a major international incident. Are you aware of that? Yes, sir. Ayrton, these men fucked up good, but you bringing formal charges against them, is that going to help that poor girl one little bit? Maybe if you had been there, sir. Maybe if you had heard her screaming, you'd feel... You don't tell me shit about screaming, boy! I've heard a lot of fucking screaming in this country! Most of it's come from wounded American boys. I'm going to transfer you out of my company, Erickson. That all right with you? I'll get you out of the bush, out of the infantry, any fucking place you want to go, you name it. I saw your 201 file in the rear. Said you volunteered to be a tunnel rat. Is that what you want, Erickson? I'd like to get out of this particular company, yes, sir. Well, that's a ride, Erickson. You're a tunnel rat. We get to the rear, you pack your trash. That's not going to keep me from trying to bring this thing out, sir. Thank you for watching this movie on such short notice, by the way. I I know it's not quite a million-dollar hotel, but... I Well, you know, when you asked me, like, what film came to mind, I was like, all right, well, what kind of film? I liked, I suggested million-dollar hotel because, to this day, I apparently seem to be the only one on Earth who likes it. <laughs> like I was introduced to it by somebody saying, oh, this is the worst fucking movie I'd ever seen. And then I watched it. I'm like, I liked that. You know, it's a movie it that I remember coming out in the early aughts and disappearing almost immediately. Like, there was no talk about that film, which is weird because Mel Gibson was still at the top of his game. And you had Mila Jovovich, who was kind of budding at that point. I don't think she had gotten into Resident Evil just yet and sullied her career. So, hmm. Yeah, I, was, I think it was right before then. But actually, this was a good opportunity because I hadn't I hadn't actually seen Casualty of War in years. Like, I think the last time I, I saw it was when I still had cable and it was on HBO. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, when you mentioned it to me, like I was like, oh, yeah, there was there was some yeah, Michael J. Fox and there's like some raping going on and he shoots a grenade with another grenade. I remember that. But it was a it was actually a really nice film to revisit. When I turned the movie on, because I've been on a Brian De Palma marathon as of late, just trying to get extremely well acquainted with his filmography. Uh, I that was not the movie that I went in expecting it to be. I you know I I wasn't familiar with the story. Apparently, it was all based on a true story. And it it's actually a really decent example of, 
I guess, young actors trying to break out of the molds that had previously defined them. Like Michael J. Fox was just coming off of probably Family Ties at that time. He was in Back to the Future. And Sean Penn, to that point, I think might have only been known as Spicoli. He might have done Bad Boys at that point. Uh, but he he still didn't have quite the the acting reputation that he would eventually garner. I think he's overrated as an actor personally, but I think these days that's a safer thing to say than then. Cause like watching, watching this and kind of remembering, you know, his younger days when he was like more aggressively going for it and wasn't just trying to be cool. Sean Penn, yeah. the way he does now, um, trying to be Bono. Like, yeah. Yeah. Trying yeah, basically he's trying to be Bono of the film world. And, um, yeah. And to see him actually trying to act in that, in that, you know, like really, really just jumping into the character. Cause even like, you know, his, he, so he played uh, Sergeant Meserve there. And it was funny because even while going back into it, knowing where that character went, he played him in this like sympathetic, genuine kind of way that really made the nasty shit he gets into later. Uh, I felt like a little more like powerful, gave it a lot more punch because it was like it, it seemed like a, a, a switch was flipped in the character's mind mm-hmm. when and you find out that no, it's that's just the that's just the nature of this guy. Yeah, and we also see a young John C. Riley. Stephen Baldwin is in the background of one shot. I don't know if you caught him. Is he? yeah, and Eric King, who is best known as Dokes, Sergeant Dokes on Dexter. Did you ever see Dexter? Yeah, well, I've been looking actually over the IMDb for for the film just to see like you know who was involved and see where they went and a lot of this cast like you know continued working uh, well on for quite a while. Pretty notable portion went to the Parkinson's clinic. Did you know that? <laughs> so Michael J. Fox, I think he's pretty slept on as a quality actor nowadays because obviously he hasn't gotten a whole lot of work lately aside from playing you know special guest handicap guy on sitcoms and procedurals on ABC. But back in the day, Michael J. Fox, I mean, I, I think there's moments of this film where it might be the peak of his acting career. At least, well, in terms of his craft. Um, I mean, it, you know, the, the first thing you think of when you think of Michael J. Fox, typically after the Parkinson's jokes, tends to be um, Back to Future. Yeah. But in, in that, I mean... You know, that's a Zemeckis film, so, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of range for Marty McFly to play with. But I think back to Family Ties and that one, that one, you know, the one hard-hitting episode that anyone who watched that show remembers when he's dealing with his friend's death. And it's, the whole thing's like a stage play. And it's, even at the time, for, like, network TV, that was a powerful scene. And he really just, he was, he just, he devoured it. Mm. Uh, did you ever see the the Frighteners? I mean, th- this isn't related to any kind of good acting, but I think that's uh, that's also an underrated with... movie. Oh, that was a lot. I saw that in theaters actually. That was yeah. That was um, that was when Ice Cube was beginning to like shed the uh, the uh, gangster image that he'd had and and really step into some other things. Mm-hmm. Now, something I found out, uh, something I found just looking over this stuff though. So the 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 old fellow, the old guy who played Captain Hill. Um, you know, the, the captain who tries to scream at him yeah. saying, nothing's going to happen. That guy, Dale Dye, actually was in Nam uh, with the Marines in 65, 67, up through 70. It says 31 major combat operations. Uh, dude, like, it was uh, he was kind of like only kind of like an Arlie Ermey in the sense that uh, 
he you know he only plays military people but that's because that's been his entire life right. i was i was thinking to myself like well you know you're, you're filming i wonder what that had to be like to go back to nam you know dressed in dressed as a captain which he became anyway he was a, he was a marine captain and just to go back there and just you know, get back in country and hear all that. I, I kind of wonder how that had to how that had to play. Well, with did they shoot this in Vietnam? Because there were portions of it where I... it looked like a, like a set, but obviously they have jungle sequences, which uh, read is completely authentic. It looks all real, but I, I mean, I, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I'm not seeing he's filming in production. So, oh no, yeah, that's oh no, it's the Thailand. Okay, yeah, yeah, it was uh, Phuket and Phang Nam. Mostly. Now the 1980s had a boom of Vietnam War movies. Where would you put this as far as that general chronology goes? I mean, we have Full Metal Jacket, we got Platoon, we have Born on the Fourth of July. There, there's so many. It seems like that that that's really like a pillar of 1980s cinema. Well, it was. I mean, you know, the guys who the guys who served were, you know it was still fresh in their minds because i you know we're, we're gonna see war on terror movies coming out in the same way unfortunately i think they're gonna be a lot more like patriotic chest thumping less oliver stone more steven seagal now but um i mean it's hard it's hard to really say because like i mean so i was briefly in the service myself um didn't deploy long story but um it, I mean, like a lot of people look at um, uh, Full Metal Jacket, right? And that's a classic non movie. But the the war sequences themselves, like when they were in country, a lot of that was very, very Hollywood. You know, it was the sort of classic Hollywood style um, version of war, as opposed to Platoon, which was it really, really went to try and get as gritty and realistic as it could be. And I think I'd I'd fit I'd fit casualties of war probably between those two, while regarding Born on the Fourth of July that was more, I mean that was more of an anti-war film in a sense. You yeah, know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't it was it was less about the war and more about the character. That's an interesting was, critique yeah. to say that Full Metal Jacket was more Hollywood than Platoon, but I, I you know I could kind of see that. I think that the characters in Full Metal Jacket are, are, are a bit more two-dimensional. Yeah, they're a cartoon. Right. And it's more about the decay of the human psyche of the soldier. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's uh, emphasized through these two-dimensional characters like Animal Mother and, and uh, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio's character, Private Pile. And Platoon, yeah, I, I will say that there is more of a focus on who these people are, not just them being, you know, kind of hollow while it was about their experience, you know, the characters' experiences. And again, keep in mind, too, because Platoon was, uh, I guess, loosely based on Oliver Stone's actual experience yes. in country. Whereas, you know, these other films, a lot of them were artistic renditions. I mean, we take Apocalypse Now, for instance. Uh, that, that Compared to the rest of these NOM films, that was, that was like an art house piece. And that was about the psychological destruction of you know, the professional soldier in, in a, in a situation where like the rules are arbitrary and, and, and the butchery is unfathomable. And see, I mean, there's a big like scope and range. What I'm glad is that we don't see, at least from that era, I can't think off the top of my head of too many like Vietnam films, which were, you know, the sort of glorious battle sequence soldier shit. Like we were soldiers kind of had that. Was that a Vietnam um, War film? I never saw it. Yeah, well, I mean, that was you know, and that was again though that was a 
that was a, a, a Mel Gibson war film where it was about, you know, this noble leader and, and not to knock Colonel, um, fuck, I, I can't remember his first name. I can't remember his last name, but uh, not to knock the real Colonel and the real story. Cause that was based on his books. And that was, uh, that was actually not even about your classic, like, all right, we're getting into Nam. How long you are, you know, how short are you and all that. It was, you know, the first, it was the opening salvos that we had when we first sent troops there. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was true to form and it was gritty, but you know, in that Gibson, like he always likes to do, tried to really pour on the the sort of steely eyed, patriotic, you know, uh, presumed nobility to war. Whereas the rest of these films, um, really almost all of them, all of the the sort of classic '80s era nom films, really did want to portray it as war is fucking terrible and it's like it just leads to worse and worse things and it turns men into dogs why do you think it is that the the vietnam war films of the 80s seem to explore that gray terrain more than the more recent iraq afghanistan gulf war films well i mean i know there's um i know at least when it comes to like the the more modern military films so if you want to get permission to use actual military hardware or film on actual bases or carriers or shit like that you need to get dod pentagon approval for it and they hang a bunch of stipulations on it because they don't you know they don't want these kind of films which make war out to be bad or, you know, show what corruption in the ranks can look right, like and right. all the kind of things we got. At, and I think with the NOM films, we got a lot of that. For one thing, because it was still really raw in the American psyche. And yeah, so the last, I mean, we had Korea before then. And that was an international police action. And it was bad, but it was more of, it was comparatively more of a conventional stand-up fight. Whereas Vietnam was kind of the first experience we had fighting a genuine insurgency with all of the nasty shit that comes along with that with like you know fire coming out of literally nowhere and you know that was still fresh in the american psyche and you get to these days and you know it's still really unpopular almost impossible in a in a mainstream kind of way to be like critical of the military of war of the defense industry any of that unless it's like a matter of political fashion like unless you're trying to make a statement mm. whereas with Nam, i mean you'd be hard pressed to find really anybody who with good understanding and knowledge of what that war was why it happened how it happened can say that it was in any way a good thing I mean, Anthony Bourdain famously said, and I love this quote, you can't visit Cambodia without immediately wanting to strangle Harry Kissinger with your own hands. What would you say is the defining war film? Oh, defining war film, shit. And that's, that's, that's tough because we've had a lot of wars, you know, mm. and made a lot of movies about them. Um, I think to... I think to a good extent, like, I think Saving Private Ryan um, gave us, you know, I mean, if anything, because, you know, the, people still remark about that opening scene, uh, you know, on the beachheads. Like, that's, even watching it now, you know, sitting down and watching that, especially if you've got a decent sound system and, you know, a nice big screen, 
that itself is like it's kind of jarring even though you know every step and every like every step and all the pacing to it because you've seen it a hundred times it's still hard to watch that scene without just kind of like your mouth going agape thinking fuck me like it was actually worse than that for me i i think the i think the best war film not not necessarily um an american film uh or or an american war film although it is a a world war ii movie is the 1985 low-key hit come and see have you ever seen come and see i've not i've actually i can't it doesn't even ring a bell, so now I'm curious. It's a Russian movie that I think was made over six or seven years, and it's the most grisly, gruesome, horrifying war film that one can watch. And I, 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 I look at that movie, and I look at something like Casualties of War, and both deal with terrible circumstances, and it makes this movie look like The Lion King. You know, it's it's uh, it's weird to see how Americans, even Americans who maybe aren't fond of uh, what we did in Vietnam, handle the material as opposed to, uh, you know, the Russian filmmakers or, or, or what have you. But, um, you know, we can look back on our on our couple centuries of history and say, well, we've had a lot of war and we have. Mm-hmm. But it pales in comparison to Russia and especially it pales in comparison to, you know, what russian war looks like because you know we at least try to pretend for instance that you know our command structures are sound and that our decision making is sound and we only do you know things for the right reasons right russia it's nothing like that it's 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 been perpetually a meat grinder since war was industrialized and um and yeah and also i mean just culturally too like russians are not known for holding back in their artistic representations of anything nasty i mean here we've i mean like the mpaa existed when casualties of war came out if that was a russian film it would have had probably a lot more rape in it (laughs) i agree i think that's a good point um why don't we get off the subject of war and focus more on the the acting in this film which i kind of briefly brought up but you see a lot of these young actors really going for it do you think that any of them miss the mark or like where where do you think these performances actually fall? Because clearly, I think they have it in their heads. Like, okay, this is my this can actually be my big break as a serious actor. Maybe I'll get a nomination for this movie. Well, I think to for one thing to see like uh, I mean there were there was a there was a, a good amount of like chewing on the scenery. Like Ving Rhames, I think Ving Rhames really poured it on thick. I don't know if and I mean that's it's just kind of his style. Like you know I, I I'm kind of. I'm hard pressed to think of a of an understated Ving Rhames performance. You know, he's like where he's toned it down and he's, you know, trying to be anything other than intense. Um, John C. Riley, I think it's funny because it's almost like that guy had to wait 25, 30 years before he got a chance to prove that he can be anything other than like the dopey guy. Like, hey, I could go for a beer. Uh. Do you want a beer? Like, I thought you were going to yeah. say uh, for him to grow into his head. That's an enormous dome. He was, <laughs> yeah. he was very skinny in that movie. And he, his head, it's still, whew. I mean, he's lucky he got fat. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, it, it, and that's, the, I mean, like his range though, I mean, because he can do anything from comedy to, you know, to, to being actually like to doing good, proper drama. Yeah, he's very good. He is. And for the longest time though. 
like it's it's it, he he it's almost like I don't know if he just went for the roles that fit that or if he was just getting typecast as you know dopey um you know like dopey kind of good boy like that even in Guardians of the Galaxy right he it was just John C Riley mm-hmm. it was John C Riley in a funny space costume um Penn I thought you know I, I thought. It, what actually part of what I liked is while you saw that kind of cliche uh, cast the soldiers like you know you got the you got the new guy with John Leguizamo who's and you knew right off the bat when he's like when he says you know and he's like oh, I'm not raping this girl you're like yeah you fucking are like yeah <laughs> yeah you are yeah a lot of that shit was telegraphed I was kind of happy though because it didn't none of it with the exception of Ving Rhames. Um, really came across as 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 ham-fisted like no one was i agree there was no one trying to be john wayne and um actually there's one the green berets because wayne was another one of those guys though like you know his his war films they were all mel gibson-y kind of like you know glorious patriots taking out the bad guys and in this one and in these later films they focused a lot more on the enemy in a way that humanized them, which like makes it all the more visceral when it came to the performances. Cause to think about it too, this, it was kind of for most of the film was pretty minimal. Like it was just that core group of characters. It was, you know, it was the, the five guys in the bush with the girl they stole. And that was it. Yeah. I, I, and, I was surprised um, at how self-contained, I guess the, the story was because again, I I knew nothing about uh, what the plot of the film was except oh, this is another Vietnam War film, and I had seen an yeah. interview with Brian De Palma where he's talking about making the movie, and he started crying over how great his own film was. <laughs> well, I mean, he pulled it off. Uh, you know, I say he he, he pulled it I, off. He he did, um... but I will also add that this movie is coming at the tail end of his. Probably his peak is a stylistic director uh, where it doesn't have like a signature flair to it that some of his earlier films uh, did, like Body Double or Phantom of the Paradise or uh, Dress to Kill. But I, I that could just be because of the confines of having to shoot it in Vietnam and emulate the Vietnam well, War. In, in, well, in Thailand, but yeah. And I mean... When you, I mean, thinking back on, you know, I just watched it like, like an hour ago, actually. And just thinking back, I'm realizing, you know, I, the most expensive shot outside of the helicopters. Actually, no, the most expensive shot, the most expensive sequence on the whole thing had to be that firefight uh, towards the end where they're, you know, hostage get, you know, they murder the girl and everything. Because mm-hmm. you got you got the helicopters, you got the big explosions, you got two boats and... um but even then, still, I mean, like it was maybe a dozen and a half actual bodies on the screen. Yeah, right? there weren't too many. There weren't too many, uh, you know, you know, gunfights in this movie compared to no. other Vietnam War films. I mean, and and that's even going against, uh, you know, Full Metal Jacket, where half the movie takes place in boot camp. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, something I was, and something I noted, not so much about the performances, but this gets more into like. Uh, it's sort of the stylistic side of things. Like there were, there was maybe one or two cliche 
kind of moments, I felt. Like, one is when Michael J. Fox's character, Erickson, is giving his, um, you know, maybe we have to be better. I mean, that was that was hammy, but then when you think about, like, when it was made, that's, the audience is expected. That. Well, what, what, hold on a second. What did you think of that ending? Because that ending almost ruined the movie for me, where... He wakes up on the bus. You know, at the beginning of the film, he's eyeing this yeah. this Asian girl. And then he falls asleep. And that's when we unfold the story of Casualties of War. Then he wakes up. She gets off the bus. He chases her down to give her a scarf. Says something in Vietnamese to her. You know, because Asian girls yeah. love that when you start speaking in a random presumed Asian language <laughs> to them. That's really how yeah. you woo them. And then she's like... It, turns out she Turns out she's Laos. Yeah. She she didn't she wasn't even like dark skinned. I wouldn't presume that she's Vietnamese. I'd say maybe Korean, maybe Chinese. But anyway, I digress. Mm. And then she's like, "It's okay, it's over." And then they have like a. It's very soap opery, very like made for TV movie. The moment I mean, in this like in this day and age, I would I would presume that moment that scene was the sort of thing that was like decided by a committee. And then they just oh, went yeah. back and shot it after to add it. You know, I saw what the in- intent was. And again, it's, it's you know, it is the kind of thing like, you know, I don't want to say filmmaking and storytelling wasn't, was like less sophisticated just, you know, that, that long ago. But, you know, again, you, you still had, you still got studios expecting shit of you. You still got, you know, beats that people... Usually, producers and committees expect you to hit. It, I wouldn't say it almost ruined the movie for me. Um, if anything, I'd say that 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 you know that that inspirational speech before you know Private Obvious die, Private Obvious gets killed. Because um, I mean that that entire sequence, like they could have toned that one down for me, and I would have been fine with that. Like if he's just talking to his friend about like I don't know what to do about this shit, and it's really fucking with my head, and instead it's like inspirational speech staring off into the middle distance um and then right up right away you know the the obviously disposable private gets blowed up mm-hmm. and stabbed on spiky spikes um that kind of that was what it was almost like everything outside of the meat when they were in the jungle really getting going in on the shit that I felt, you know, it was it. It felt kind of tacked on. It felt not superfluous, but bordering on that. I completely agree with that. It makes me think if there was maybe a pause or a break in filming between uh, those core jungle moments where they are kidnapping the girl and defending themselves against the uh, Viet Cong, and and then also the uh, you know the camp shots, and then everything else, because it is so tonally different i mean it it might not be that obvious to people who are just tuning in who are casual viewers but it felt not necessarily detached but just less cared for i guess yeah yeah and and i mean and that's the kind of thing which makes me think you know it could it could be either one of two things most likely one is that you know you like you say the palma was kind of cresting right he was kind of like his his peak had hit and he's kind of rolling off of that and that, you know, maybe that was him sort of succumbing to that to that downward trajectory that, you know, artists often go on to. Mm-hmm. Or what I think is probably more likely was that it was studio pressure, that it was 
hey, let's you know make sure we 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 hit this beat and this beat and n- no obvious set pieces in it, which was nice. But um, well, I don't I don't think yeah. it's mutually exclusive. I think it can be both things at once. I mean, the I, I'm not sure which film follows this in his filmography. I think it might be Raising Cain. I I could be wrong about that, but I watched that movie. That's from '92. And it is entirely cringe. Have you ever seen Raising Cain with John Lithgow? I have not. Um, in fact, actually, I was like wondering why that sprung to mind. And then I'm pretty sure I, I don't know if I saw like a Facebook post from you or what. OK, so apparently what came before Raising Cain is what is infamously known as one of his worst films, The Bonfire, The Vanities. And it's to come to what you're suggesting here, Studio Interference ruining that movies and and then he comes back momentarily changes his style a little bit with carlito's way then gets into mission impossible kicks off that whole series but i've been looking into some of the more notable directors of like the 80s the 70s and why it seems like their their general texture and style seems to dull itself after a while uh and overall the quality takes a decline um, now it could just be a natural thing that occurs with all artists, but, uh, I, I just find it interesting that he did still have hits out of the 1980s, but there was a particular window of time where there seemed to be an overlapping aesthetic and you can almost watch those films one after another and they feel spiritually in tone with one another. And this is maybe the first step out of those lines. And I don't, I don't know if you really see that today with modern filmmakers where, you know, there there is a common aesthetic with each film. Uh, the, the I mean, the closest I can probably think of is uh, maybe like Harmony Korine or, or somebody like that. But he's not even that modern. He's from the 90s. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I mean, you take, you know, if, if we're going to I mean, talking about modern film, because I've noticed that, it, you know, with the growth of this like IP camping that studios are doing more now and they are, you know, they're still muscling out. Um, you know, independent, you know, independent film, like independent visions. And we're seeing that on in places like Amazon and Netflix, too, where instead of going for something that could be daring, they, they play it safe going with sort of something more formulaic that they know mass audiences will like. And I was I, I found myself noticing there was one scene just before the raping begins, um, you know, after Sean Penn does his threatening bits with Michael J. Fox. And uh, and John Leguizamo pushes out. I noticed, and it was a really subtle thing, and it was just the way that the camera moved. It just sort of tracked Penn as he walked back from the group, still giving his lines. And I don't. I mean, it's hard to really describe. It was like it was such a like subtle sort of just organic matter of camera movement. Mm-hmm that you don't really see much of these days because these days, like the only time I notice that you see what you might call uh, enjoyable cinematography in a lot of films, it, it's it's either standard blocking shots or you can tell the DP is trying to show off. Yeah. And that that sweet middle ground there where like it feels like just the motion of the camera, the, the you know, the way the, the image moves and tracks and follows gives you a, a sort of real sense like you are almost there. We don't really see that much. And I think a lot of that is because, you know, if you're going to try and be artistic, if you're going to try and have 
a style, like a defined style that is yours and notable to the audiences, especially if it's something different than what they're used to, it has to be that studio friendly shit. And you see this, you see this a lot too, even with the writing. Like you take any Marvel film, any DC property right now, they they fucked Star Wars up with it too. And it's, you know, and it's that dropping in of needless, family friendly, safe, stupid humor shit that you just don't need. And it's, you know, it, my hope is still that audiences are going to grow more tired of these big blockbuster IP things and these playing it safe kind of things. And we might see kind of another little mini renaissance of indie film where maybe we get our next Wes Anderson or something. Well, I mean, uh, the money uh, studios are taking a bit of a hit this summer where these sequels, the reboots, et cetera, like Fast and the Furious 8 and their Rock and Jason Statham spinoff, like it's not making as much money as they had planned. And I think the reality is you're going to wind up seeing a lot of companies like A24 or Cine State or Alara Pictures that are essentially filmmaker-run studios. You know, like Focus. Features, right. like sure. Theater, right? uh, like essentially putting out their own content and then relying on something like Amazon or Netflix for distribution. You're touching on something that I think is not often discussed, which when it comes to cinematography... Many directors nowadays simply think that having good lighting or interesting lighting makes for good cinematography, and that's that. But you're getting into the camera work of it, and this is something that is often overlooked, where I think Brian De Palma, one of his signatures is having that interesting camera work with, uh, you know, as you had said, or maybe the, the split diopter effect or all these different uh, functions that you can put into play with the lenses and the only other guy to really do that and put an emphasis on that was Alfred Hitchcock who I think Brian De Palma mm. apes quite a bit of but nobody nobody's really interested in doing that today you you just see neon in place of substance and there's nothing wrong with having uh, neon lighting or, or any kind of uh, focus on the lighting I think that's very important but that's not all there is to it well I mean I it's it's I mean, a funny thing I noticed, like one of the last films I did, Amy in a Cage, which um, if you want to find a more divisive film, <laughs> good luck. And people either think it's some like some like, acid casualty like shit show or some like masterful artistic piece. But I just remember like it was one of my first times on a real proper set, you know, ultra low budget, but still it's we're not doing just slasher shit in the backyard with someone's DSLR kind of thing. And I remember just like the way that that uh, I think yeah Daphne who was the DP on that Daphne Wu um, like the shots that she would work with Huru on and the way like they'd rip the set apart just to make sure that they could get this angle and get this motion and get this tracking just right was one of the first times like I really kind of noticed that myself and. I remember Black, when Black Panther came out, people were going nuts about the cinematography in it. And it was really, it was stylistic, but it was, it was, it looked, like I said, it looked like the DP was just trying to show off in that way. And I think maybe part of me wonders if the switch to digital didn't, if that's not one of those waves, because when, when high resolution digital photography came into play, it changed everything, everyone from lighting to makeup to, to, naturally like the the cinematographers themselves everyone had to sort of relearn a whole bunch of shit because if they didn't you know the sort of uh 
the sort of like heavy palette makeup you could put on an actor when they're on when they're on actual film stock because of the way the light bounces off it and is absorbed on in, into that film. It's you know that same kind of thing. It looks like they're painted up like geisha on on like a nice like eight K red or something like that. And so I, I do kind of wonder if maybe it's maybe we're just waiting to see the new style, which we're you know with these with these camera people and these DPs and such, where they realize like okay yeah like the lighting and the framing of the lighting. Maybe we need to do a little more than just that. Well, I want to get into kind of an unrelated topic here, but you had just briefly touched on it. Uh, I want to talk about the local New England film scene, since we're talking about independent studios. And, uh, you know... It's it's adorable. (laughs) I wish I could pat it on the head. It's... You know, there was actually a moment where it seemed like Boston could be a new hub on the East Coast for film, where they were shooting... Uh, you know, uh, uh, Ghostbusters, they were doing Ted, Ted 2, and all these different films. Now it's really just, you know, Mark Wahlberg, Peter Berg features might might shoot here every so often, and that's about it. Yeah, or, or they'll just set it in Boston and shoot it in New York the way they've been doing a lot of City on the Hill, <laughs> which we were kind of talking about. I, for one, I keep wondering if... Uh, if we we don't have Troy Duffy to blame, um, you you think that he's I, sour? I mean, they didn't even shoot Boondock Saints though in Boston. They shot that in Toronto. Did they? Yeah. Before he got me tooed out of existence, uh, Harvey Weinstein was the most powerful person in Hollywood, and Duffy was so fucking. He was such a shit show, such a miserable shit show to work with for the studios and for everyone else involved, with the exception apparently of Ron Jeremy. That I mean, I kind of have to wonder if maybe that didn't put like a sour taste. But the other thing I have to wonder too is, you know, having having tried to make some inroads here because when I was when I trained as an actor down in New Orleans, right, I was getting put out for things like Twelve Years a Slave. I was getting put out for Empire State, you know, in the 2012 era. They, they were filming all kinds of shit down there. Most of the roles I got put out for, my roommate got, but he had a reel and I didn't. I came back up here. And I was finding guys like, um, Christ, what did they call themselves? Like, it was like the, the, the New England actors or Boston actors. And this kid, Rich Bailey, um, nice guy. I don't mean to talk any personal shit about him, but he was teaching a Meisner class. And this was, and I noticed, this is when I started noticing this trend here, as far as actors go, um, 90% of people are, are like career background and they fill, they pad their resumes and even their reels with their background appearances. And in every other market, my, you know, I've got friends in New York. I've got you know friends who've worked the LA market, and especially down in the southern, like southeast market. Universally, every agent casting director I've ever talked to, when you ask like, "Hey, should you put background on your reel or resume?" they look at you like you're speaking Greek. Like the fuck did you just say? Are you crazy? No, because if you're known for background, then it's assumed you can't act. And that was like it seems that's you know it, it's a a lot of the companies a lot of the uh, a lot of the industry that exists here seems sometimes more interested in milking the desire of people to be part of it than they do really seem to be about building it up. I mean, if if you call me when I'm uh, when I'm like thirty one or thirty two at the time, and you call me down 
for an audition and it turns out it's just another cattle call and you you're putting me up for a role of a 50 something year old cop like did you even look at the headshot or are you just are you just casting fishing nets out and hoping you're going to find somebody and uh and there are some gems that get made here there's some genuinely talented people but i think it's kind of a brain drain situation because it to a lot of people this feels and looks like a dead end market and the only the only local talent that I've ever worked with um, who've gone on to do better things, who've gone on to do, you know, recurring roles in Netflix. I have a I have a friend who did like five, four or five episodes in Daredevil, right, which for an actor, that's that's good work. He couldn't get that kind of shit until he left for New York. And so I think maybe that here there's a little too much, you know, it's that sort of New England thing of like, ooh, let me get what I can get right now and fuck the rest of it. Yeah, I, I that's 100% what it is. I mean, we have a very micro casting uh, industry that is fueled on exploiting people's hopes that maybe their face will be on screen for three or four seconds. Like, I, you know, you would mention the, the, the cop role that you went up for, which was for Patriot's Day, right? Yeah, yeah. I did Patriot's Day. I decided to. I I went with a friend of mine <clears throat> who was trying to be an actor at that time. It's full of a lot of gullible people who are like, "Well, I mean, uh, you know, if you got the opportunity, why not? I mean, you could be on." And it's like a ten-hour day without any pay. You get a free sandwich, and it's going to be pouring out. And that is uh, how the, how how they're going about. Uh, casting people they don't tell you did, do uh did, do you remember the uh do you remember the hysteria around black mass uh, black mass? no i i once i had <sighs> i think patriot's day was before black mass i could be wrong about that but at that no, point no i, w- no, I was that. out on all that the production the like the pre-production on black mass was taking place before patriot's day because patriot's day was just kind of like a mark Wahlberg slapped together hey do you guys remember i'm from boston kind of movie um uh, Black Mass, though, it was, and this was when I'd just gotten back up here, and I'd done a couple small, like, you know, really small productions, um, some that, and some of them just really fucking, <clears throat> really, really bizarre, uh, there was, like, a music video I did, where my, like, he asked me what my rate is, and my, my old, like, mentor, my old friend, Chris, uh, told me, uh, just tell him you don't get out of bed for less than 500 a day. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll highball him. Dude's just like, oh, yeah, that'll be fine. And then by the end of it, I was getting like 1200 a day. And then he spent all this money, and then no one knows what happened to the project. It just disappeared. Um, that happens a lot. Yeah, it's, I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect that. But, you know, I'd done a few of those, and I was recommended by – it was like one of the associate casting directors at one of the, the Boston companies – in a chat on Facebook was like, Oh, Hey, yeah, well, like listen, you know, they're casting for this new Johnny Depp film. You should go down. This is where it's happening. So I'm going down, expecting it to be a normal casting where you show up, you submit your materials, you go before the casting director. And I've done this, you know, I've done plenty of auditions in Manhattan, um, plenty of auditions in new Orleans. And one, this was like a 2000 person cattle call. It was ridiculous. Ridiculous! Like it was like two hours of standing in this line that snaked through, snaked around a parking lot, and then you get in, and it was just this this weird machine assembly line where you go to one table, hand them your materials, they hand you a little piece of paper, you go to the next one, they take your photo, you go to the next one, you give them your contact info, and then you're done. Like that's not an audition. 
you know, there, there is really outside of the true indie scene, outside of the people who are like with their own money and their own gear and their own visions, really just trying to make their films on an industrial side, there is very little emphasis or interest in real craft here. Mm -hmm. And to get back to that, and again, I don't want to be bagging on the dude personally, but that, that guy Rich, like this little club, it was this weird culty little clique of him and this, uh, this girl, Erica, who billed herself as a headshot photographer, but her shit looked like glamour shots. Like, I shit you not, they look like 80s glamour shots. And um, then was running this little thing called, uh, oh, it's your digital press kit. I'm going to sell you like a $300 digital social media press. Like, fuck off. What the hell kind of, what is this? And they, that was like viewed by a lot of the industry here as like a legit thing, but they just pull background actors from there. And when I went out for Ascendance, which I did with Don Schechter out in Newton, and we shot it in Boston on the waterfront, um, I was, I guess, I was like his last audition for the day. I'd already gone and done like two commercial auditions just for like industrial things. Right. And I get there. So I'm a little loopy, which is good for me in an audition because I'm completely loose. I go through, I do the lines. He gives me the role. When we're shooting later, he's asking, he's like, Dad, do you know what this 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 club thing is about? They you know, they say they're doing Meisner classes. I'm like, Yeah, I checked it out. It seemed a little sketch. He's like, I don't wanna you know, and I don't know if I should be saying this, but fuck it. Um He was like, Yeah, the the like I gave him background roles because, you know, they're they're really into it, but those were like I don't know what they're teaching because those are some of the worst auditions I've ever seen. Ugh. Yeah. And it's yeah, and it's it's disappointing. It's like you know, it's one of the things that makes me want to run back to New Orleans, just so I can, if even if I don't get the work, if I could just be around the craft and the people who give a shit. There's a couple of problems in play when it comes to Massachusetts in particular in relation to film, where you do have these vultures running around, and this is like the premier of the the film industry here. But on top of that, the state itself is not very friendly nowadays toward any kind of production company or, or, or small businesses in general uh, mm, that want to no. get started. That's, that's not just Massachusetts. That's New England. Sure, in sure. Yeah. But, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, you're going to have to need really talented, creative people who are willing to just go, OK, yeah, I'm not going to take the easy route, go to Los Angeles and New York, sweep up these jobs that are going to be able to finance my apartment and all my expenses and take care of all my problems. And I'm going to be doing what it is I enjoy most. Uh, nobody really has the time or interest in doing that, at least for right now. Uh, there is a company out in Dallas called Cine State, and I just finished talking about them. Oh, yeah. With, them. Yeah, I, I did a show with Christoph, our mutual, uh, yesterday on the film Bone Tomahawk, which I believe they shot there, but they're Located in Dallas, and I'm seeing a lot of creative people flock to Texas because there's a good financial incentive in uh, setting up shop there and being able to use that to your advantage in producing these films. If something like that could happen in New England, I would be astounded and over the moon about that. But I don't know if that's really in the cards. I, I don't think so because, and this is like, you know, I'm people, you know, people who know me know. Uh, you know, having lived and worked in places like the Midwest and Philly, and especially down south, um, like I, I'm a I'm, I'm a staunch critic of New England in general. And on a cultural level, one of the things that I've noticed is that this is a very nimby 
kind of place. Every, nobody wants anything happening in their backyards. Nobody wants trucks on the roads. Nobody wants anything that could potentially inconvenience them personally in the slightest capacity to occur. Like, I've, I've worked, when I got up here, I tried to work with the New Hampshire film office. Because I'm like, okay, we, we've already got a super low tax burden. You know, if we could bring this industry, which will bring projects sometimes that are, have like upwards of $30 million to spend. You're talking about caterers. You're talking about riggers, truckers. You're talking about PAs. You know, you're talking about jobs out the yin-yang, mm -hmm. and we wouldn't have to change that much. And if you go to the New Hampshire film website, it looks like a shitty Angel Fire Tourist <laughs> website. It's like... We got these covered bridges. Oh no, no, no! You can't enlarge those photos. They're just there. <laughs> what? <laughs> I... And well, I mean, in talking with people, and I've talked to the legislature about it too. Um, and it's, I mean, a very New Hampshire thing, but it's New England in general. Is there is a such a strong resistance to any form of change and any form of attention because New England it likes to fancy itself as being that old timey covered bridges kind of place. And they don't want to change that at all. Which is crazy, because if you look at the city of Quincy, Massachusetts, for example, where they decided to film a handful of Kevin James films. If you're a big fan of Kevin James, you've probably seen that town <laughs> quite a few times. Mall Cop, Here Comes the Boom, which was uh, Joe Rogan was also in that my, movie. My guess is that if you're a fan of Kevin James, you probably can't find Quincy on a map, though. Mm. Well, they decided to shoot those movies there. And what happened was it kind of destroyed the city for maybe six or seven years. And now huh. Quincy is completely different. It, it's, a, you know, it, it's a brand new town where they've created a new center. They've run out the homeless and a lot of the middle class families for people who want to spend a bit more money on apartments and condos. And it's a nicer looking place, maybe not a fun gentrified. place to be. Oh, it's totally gentrified. But on the surface, that's a good thing, right? You're making more money. You're fixing up your town. This is this is great. The economy. But that's it. I'm just saying this is this is an effect. I mean, if you if you're uh, you know working for the city, then this is something you maybe want to prioritize. But there doesn't seem much much interest. Well, the, I mean, I think the other side to that though too also comes in, and, and I notice this is like increasingly, uh, and I, you know, I, I do I talk a lot about politics and my own work. And I'm, I've been noticing this trend, you know, the old American spirit of, you know, we can do anything and we can do it better than anyone else is dead. And so and I've, I've even heard it when it comes to the mass because mass had a pretty robust uh, tax incentive package for the film and production industry, which was what was starting to draw at least like back end production kind of things like things like, you know, like the Ted movies um, which again, ninety five percent of the cast and probably half the crew were from New York or L.A. But um, you know, it was it was starting to draw things in a bit. And I remember that when they were discussing it, they're like, "Oh well, like look at how broken Louisiana's um, tax plans have been. We don't want to do that." As opposed to saying, "Okay, well let's look at how these things didn't work. What didn't work about them, and then show." louisiana that we can do it better there's the, that attitude that sort of forward thinking can do attitude just doesn't seem to exist in general anymore so when you're trying to sell people on it on the basis of artistic creation and and an artistic creative industry especially in a place like this the pushback is going to be immense 
Well, what do you think is the source of that? And also, as a follow-up question, what do you see as the future of film in that regard? Uh, well, what fuels it, I think, is really just a cultural attitude. Um, New England in general, and I, you know, I, I'm speaking from New Hampshire here. Like, New Hampshire is a very old state in terms of its median age. Like, I think the median age up here is like 46, right? The biggest growing industry is senior care. And New England in general is, it's an older place. And it's, you know, it's run by and for older people who are going to be naturally conservative, not like, you know, big C conservative, but small C conservative in that sense. Um, when the notion of trying new things or things changing is going to get a lot of pushback. And then also, you know, the entertainment industry doesn't have the best reputation. And it, it earned that reputation you know it it created the harvey weinsteins of the world and shit and so i I could see like reservation and pushback my hope in terms of what could address that i think maybe like just off the top of my head a two-pronged notion of one being reframing how uh it's pitched because when it comes to film uh, most of the arguments you end up hearing are on a purely economic basis, right? But if one was to approach it and perhaps try and sell it to a city or a state on the grounds of, you know, the way this area will be portrayed to the broader national and international audience, you know, saying like, you know, you can show, you can show off Boston as being this interesting, modern, complex weird cool place with a lot of character as opposed to just being where a bunch of dudes threw tea in the water once um on you know on those grounds and then also i mean having worked with people like like i said don Schechter, who runs uh, charles river media he's the guy who made the ascendance films and like th- those were his personal babies right and it's been screened around at a bunch of festivals he's hoping to pitch them to one of the streaming services, I've actually, I, I helped him write a novel for it because he, he's, he's pushing and he's, he refuses to let his vision die like that. And I think if more people took it seriously in that way, because one of the things that drove me nuts about, you know, just trying to build a reel is, you know, you do a lot of student films. Mm. And I got to a point where I, I was openly saying, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm pitched one more freebie student film about a struggling art student who's gonna who needs to make their parents understand their vision i'm gonna shoot myself because that was just like that was the rage it was a bunch of self-indulgent shit you know i think i think if real artists and i think a lot of people with visions get burned out because like you've seen side by side right uh documentary right yeah yes yeah, Keanu Reeves yes. Documentary. yeah i've seen it I loved my favorite part about it was in the end when he was talking all like I think he talked to De Palma. I know he talked to Scorsese and the opinion with the old guard is split. Some are saying, wow, this is, you know, this is great because now all of these artists who would have maybe never had the chance to make their vision a reality have the means to do that. Um, you know, digital technology gets better and therefore cheaper um every year or so i mean you're people running around with 8k red dragons now 
the price of a 4K Red Epic. It's still, you know, $30,000 camera, but it's, you know, you can rent those a lot cheaper. So on the one hand, yeah, like these artists can make their visions. But on the other hand, because everyone can make a film now, to find those diamonds in the rough, you have to wade through an ocean of shit to get there, of self-indulgent tripe and lame slashers. And, you know, those are fun and great to make. And it's always better to make a movie than not to. But I think in order for the real renaissance we would need, I think we'd need to start seeing more of these independent creators first being more dedicated to making and pushing and completing and exposing their stuff, um, but also for audiences to be more open to them. Like if you go to ITVF, which is the Independent Television and Film um, Festival up in Vermont, uh, it's a nice place. I mean, and there's a lot of industry folks there. But it was the funny thing I noticed is like with the exception of a few really hot button ones, which were usually like promoted on the grounds of like, oh, this is the most diverse film we have. Right. You'd go to screenings and like the screenings would be empty. Like no one's going to see the films. They're just there to like hobnob and mingle. And so, I mean, if, if audiences maybe stepped up and started demanding more quality art and more like quality storytelling in their independent films after they get sick of like the next Transformers, whatever it's going to be. Um, I could see that motivating even states like, you know, even places like New England to maybe revisit the question of supporting and encouraging the arts in that way. I would be, again, I would be thrilled if that were the case. I'm not very optimistic about that happening, though. Uh, however, what just came to mind is that, uh, you know, there is a filmmaker out in Boston who is trying to breed a new renaissance. And that filmmaker is... Ralph the Movie Maker on YouTube. Have you seen this guy? I've heard the name. I haven't. I haven't checked out his, his uh, any of his work though. Well, I hate to report that the movie that he did, which is called Lover, which is now on Amazon Prime, it got suggested to me, and has a bunch of reviews. Uh, looks and sounds exactly like the type of movie that you hate that is often made here from Emerson students. And <laughs> and so, you know, you're, you're watching, uh, I don't know, you're watching Gummo. And then all of a sudden it goes, what, what to watch next? And then you see Lover. And it's like a 19-year-old boy shooting in black and white on a DSLR at his college. And, uh, you know, there's like 50 reviews or something. So it's getting pushed out there. It's being actually recommended because of his YouTube audience. And um, I don't want to. Was it well made? No, uh, but I don't. I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to. I don't want to trash the guy. No, no. And I mean, again, anybody who makes a film, even if it's something I'd regard as self indulgent trash, that's still better than all the films that aren't getting. Made. Exactly. Yeah. He he did something that many other people failed to do, and he's got it on Amazon. He's making money off of it, which is great for him. Uh, he might kind of wish maybe he went a different route in eight years if he sticks with it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose the, the film industry here isn't entirely dead. Well, I think, you know, I, I mean, and, and again, like, you know, uh, when I when I offer those opinions about those things, like, yeah, like, honestly, the number of those films, um, especially when it's like, oh, yeah, you know, drive on down from Manchester and um, uh, no, it'll be great exposure and I'm thinking like, all right, listen, I've got, you know, I've got a decentish resume. I'm not really hunting for exposure quite as much from student films because student films are for building your reel, not, you, you know, you, you're not, you're getting exposed to like other students. But I think maybe I, I could probably actually just admit that Sofia Coppola is to blame for my 
distaste for such things because everything Sofia Coppola has ever done has been self-indulgent trash that she just wrote on her name with. That's a very uh, daring opinion in today's landscape. There are a lot of people who love Sofia Coppola, but I, I would actually make the argument that I think Gia Coppola is the more talented Coppola uh, offspring who did Palo Alto, and I, I don't know what else she's done since then, but uh, I'll actually back you up there. I, I don't think I've been a fan of anything that Sofia Coppola has done as a director. Well, I mean, Virgin Suicides was like, okay, so you decided to revisit your diary from when you were young. Okay. Um, then, um, what was it? Lost in Translation. Okay, so you had, like, you know, a thing for an older guy once. Okay. And then what? Marie Antoinette? There's not, there is nothing remotely redeemable about that film. Nothing. You know, nothing. You know what? I, I didn't mind the movie Somewhere with Stephen Dorff and Chris Pontius. I did hear that was a bit better, but then again, also, like, at that point, you know, she was, you know, because she, she's, you know, she's not, like, some, like, early 20s, hey, I'm going to follow in Dad's footsteps director anymore, you know, she's, you know, she's like, hey, at least I'm not Diablo Cody. <laughs> Whatever happened to Diablo Cody, man, she she really had a, it, it, her career was like a shooting star, you know? Nobody talks about Diablo Cody anymore, and she was the biggest thing in Hollywood for a good two, three years. She had that Lena Dunham-style you know, reputation. She did. But I mean, I, actually, I, I worked background on, I forget, it was originally called Lamb, and I have no clue what it ended up being called. It was about some Mormon girl who runs off to Vegas and gets involved with, like, Russell Brand. And I, like, I don't even know, but, like... Diablo Cody was like as pregnant as one can be when she was shooting that. And my my old roommate from down New Orleans way uh, had a he had like I think he had like four days just playing like a gondolier. But, you know, he had he had, you know, he had lines. He was a principal. He was principal role. And he was telling me he was like just Josh around just shooting the shit with with her. And because um, she was previously a stripper. Yeah. Yeah, and she was like, and I guess she's kind of known for saying, she's like, you know, I love doing this, but it's not the most important thing in the world. And if uh, my career goes to shit, I'll shit, I'll just go back on the pole, you know? So my, my guess is probably, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't just sort of like, you know, have the family she wanted, got the cash she needed, and just was like, I'm comfortable. I don't need to do this anymore. That could very well be the case. I know that she's been hired to polish up scripts, but she hasn't actually done anything of note. As of late. Uh, anyhow, we're close to the one hour mark. And about half this show was dedicated to not casualties of war. We wound up on Diablo Cody there. Do you have any, <laughs> do you have any closing thoughts on casualties of war? Um, if you, uh, I mean, it's, I think uh, it's, uh, I wouldn't, I'm like, I'm kind of torn between calling it a, a really good movie and a great film. It had... So many elements that offered the potential to make it one of those great semi-iconic films, but then a few, like, it stumbles throughout the way. But because it's not one of the kind of movies that jumps to the front of your mind for most people, I'd say revisit it. Um, it's, I mean, sitting and watching it today, like, uh, you know, part of the reason that I, I asked if we could delay recording this for a bit was not just so I could, you know, see the whole thing and... And uh, have something to talk about it with, but also because I was like, I I want to watch the rest of this film. It's it's you know it's got the right pacing. It kind of actually it kind of surprises you a little bit because what looks like the climax of the film 
turns out to just like it the climax comes a little early and then the falling action is itself still mostly engaging and mm-hmm. so it's um it's it, yeah if nothing else i'd say revisit it because it's it will at least maybe remind you of some of what filmmaking can be now let me ask you something uh because again this isn't the type of movie that maybe one would immediately seek out and revisit what do you think the effect of the packaging of the film itself has in terms of uh has in play in terms of the the revisitability of it because if you think about brian de palma's other films there's a more recognized look to them uh just on the surface in terms of like the poster art or something like that you check this Mm -hmm. out and it's just like two floating heads of Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox, and you have no idea who the director is or what you might be in for. It could be from any nameless director of the 80s or 90s. Do you think that might play a part in why a film like this is completely ignored nowadays? It's it's really muted in that sense. The cover art, for instance, just the cover art itself, is it's it's non it's it's not engaging. It's not exciting remotely. And even the general aesthetic of the film itself, it has a really generic Vietnam movie look to it. I think you know, muted talk, is a great term to align yeah. with that. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, that's that's really the first word that comes to mind. Because if you think about, like, because when I think about war films, for instance, I mentioned Saving Private Ryan. Now, the forgotten bastard stepson of that film that came out was, um, was, it was Terrence... Uh, Terrence uh, uh, Terrence Malick, what was the Thin Red Line? Everybody forgets about that film. I enjoyed it, even though it was a lot of that Terrence Malick. Like, I'm going to take a shot at the sun through these leaves and have some really esoteric kind of semi-poetry dialogue going on. I'm like, what is war? Who are you? War does not noble a man, but turns him into dogs. Like, you know that that, that needless Terrence Malick. But all the same, like. Those both, both that and Saving Private Ryan, if you watch them, you can see just visually they're both very distinctive, the the way they play with color. Saving Private Ryan, they really wanted to amp up the whole European front thing, so they, they muted the colors, lots of grays, even the greens were grays, um, whereas Thin Red Line was, like, the grass was as green as green can get, um, you know the 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 skin tone, the just the color mastering. All of that was very attuned to a very specific vision. Whereas in this, it just it did kind of feel a bit generic. I mean, almost like it was almost trying to copy the uh, the color correction and lighting scheme from Platoon, and then lacking any of those really stylistic sort of blocking that 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 film's known for. I wonder if that did play a part because obviously Platoon won. The Academy Award for Best Picture only a couple of years earlier. This was probably in production in '88, mm-hmm. so yeah, that, I mean that could have absolutely had an influence over the studio's decisions or even Brian De Palma's decisions, depending on what he was going for with this. Again, it does feel like awards schlock of the day, and I, I actually don't think it was nominated for anything, but uh, that could have absolutely been in their heads. It it did have some. It, it was kind of Oscar baity, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And like old school Oscar Beatty, not this new school, completely sterilized, uh, the King's Speech type. Uh, there was a particular vibe to those type of movies, I would say from like 1997 and prior to that. Yeah. Well, and, and again, though, it's, you know, I think one of the 
tricky parts in considering this is, I mean, for instance, I was six years old in 1989, you know? Um, and, you know, when you look back, like, and, and, you know, it goes both ways in the same way that we were talking earlier about how, you know, just the basic motion of a camera in a scene and, and the sort of choreography that goes into those scenes has gone from being something which felt natural that brought you into it to something which feels like, like, hey, you know, yeah, I know we're doing a courtroom drama, but we got the guy who did La La Land. Check it out. Mm. Look, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, I think, I think maybe it was sort of a build and it was sort of like a, a, a desire um, within the industry and within maybe also the filmmakers as they were coming up. Like if De Palma wanted this to be his platoon, I'd say he tried a little too hard to make it look like platoon. Where can people find you on the internet? I think this has been a pretty good discussion as far as like acting and filmmaking as a whole. And I think we did I, I had fun. did the film justice by putting a, a pin in things there. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I had a lot of fun. So, I mean, anytime you want me back, if you've got, if anybody wants to find me, like you're going to be really, really fucking confused as to, as to what you get. Um, if you go to Wizard of Cause on YouTube, that's my own channel. Um, just, it's, it's my takes on polit- political and philosophical matters and before anybody thinks it's just some actor trying to pipe up about politics I worked in that field for 10 years before even attempting acting um, but yeah so like sort of cerebral I guess if you could say discussions but if you go over to Twitch or just the Late Night Saints channel on YouTube I do late night hosting there just two hours of Comedy, just jokes, cracking jokes and improv, sometimes skits, and I'll, I'll produce like short little promo bumpers in ten minutes because I'm out of ideas. 